Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Mark Burris and this is Straight Talk. After years of listening to Merrick Watts on the radio, you'd think you had a good read on the bloke and who he is. A larrikin, a funny guy. Merrick wasn't actually what I expected at the end of the day. I've got to be honest with you, I underestimated him. And it turns out I'm not the only one, it seems. And he leans into that. He likes that. This opinion of Merrick is probably what got him onto the SAS Australia. Let's give the comedian a taste of what it's like to go through intensive special forces training and see how quickly he can sink. Well, little do they know. Merrick is, in his own words, a chameleon. He's able to adapt and thrive in any situation you chuck at him. You never know what you're going to get with Merrick, and he will make sure he's the best at whatever you throw at him. The thing he's throwing himself into at the moment is his wine event business, and it's called Grapes Mirth, combining live comedy, people, and wine. If I've ever seen anybody who is what is commonly known as a shapeshifter, then this is the dude. So... It's time for No Bullshit with Merrick Watts. Merrick Watts, welcome to an episode of Straight Talk, mate. Mark, thank you very much for having me. Now, you know what Straight Talk's about? I mean, it's about talking straight. Yeah, I've, no heard, shit. The, I've heard the podcast and you want you want straight answers to real questions. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, All right, that's unfortunate because I brought a, a bag of bullshit with me. So. <laughs> that's a good start. That's a good start. I mean, you're a funny bastard. I mean, that's, that's sort a of – A given. Yeah, but I was sort of like, you know, straight, funny, straight guy, funny guy. Um, you always been a funny guy? Like, is that like, – I mean, I'm not a funny good dude. Like, I, I haven't got a – you know, I can laugh at other people's stuff, but I, I can never remember a joke. I can't – I'm not – quick-witted enough in a funny way. Where the hell does being a funny guy come from? Like, oh, Probably childhood trauma, I'd imagine. Yeah, well, uh, no, by the way, is, is is it a mechanism? A coping mechanism? Yeah. Oh, definitely. But also it's, you know, it's like that nature versus nurture, you know, discussion, you know, what comes for, what comes first, the chicken or the egg, you know, the child or the performer. But it's, um, I think that it's, it's always felt, like it's in my DNA. It's always been something that I think differently. I've always thought differently to other people. Um, and I've always been cognizant of the fact that I am a, a different type of thinker. So I was always kind of going to do something a little bit different anyway. But comedy, yeah, probably, you know, the the desire to have people, um, you know, to please people, to entertain people and to get people to laugh, probably a mechanism from, you know, from childhood. Which so well okay let's jump desperate in. for attention dad issues well all okay the what is all the classics well tell me like <laughs> I mean I mean like maybe I had too nice a upbringing and too stable what it was to actually ever need that coping mechanism and mm. uh, but out of um 
Well, that's it. Darkness I feel, comes good stuff. I feel sorry for people with a stable childhood because you know that they'll never enter to enter the entertainment industry. Um, as a result, you know, there's. But uh, is that a joke? You, you mean no? That? I, I, you know, it's, there's an old saying in, in comedy about you know that uh, to paraphrase it is you know show me a comedian and I'll show you somebody with daddy issues. It's it's very very common. Um, for me, it's about I, I'm very very open about it. I have no problems. I've I've spoken to um, a psychologist about it. Um, in uh, therapy when my father died. Um, so I'm, I'm very at peace with it, but it's, yeah, it's a coping mechanism and an attention-seeking mechanism because I didn't feel like I got the attention from my father as a child. And because he attended to others or, or he just wasn't interested? Uh, <laughs> probably just not interested. Well, I like the way you laughed at I thought to myself, shit, if I said the wrong thing then. No, but no, no. Yeah. It's, it's all, it's, it's good. It's, that's the other well, thing why too. Why was it's he funny. interested? What, what, when, okay, you've, you've, done, you've thought it through, but why wasn't he interested? Um, I think that my dad was uh, a, probably a combination of things because uh, he was – his father was away uh, a lot with the military. He was in the army and uh, he fought in the, the Second World War. So my my father was with his brother and his mother for a period of time. So not that he he had abandonment issues or anything like that, but he was just like his father was of a certain type of generation and my father was of a certain type of generation. And the type of father that I am then you kind of see more currently in society is very, very different. We're far more connected. We're far more involved and invested in our children. Um so, you know, my father used to, used to say, uh, almost ad nauseum, would say, children should be seen but not heard. So mm. that's quite – I kind of bucked that rule for him um, and ruined it. But it's – I think it was generational um, for my dad. And, you know, I had an older brother, which I think that, you know, he looked at me and looked at my older brother and probably, you know, picked the other horse. Um, and that's, you know, certainly how I felt you as a kid. You had an older brother. Is, is oh, I, have an, I have an you older have brother. You have an older yeah. brother, yeah yeah. yeah, yeah. And where'd you grow up? I grew up in a town called Eltham, which is in the outer suburbs of Melbourne, a leafy area, and um, a very strangely um, strange dichotomy of of uh, influences in that area. We talking um, like we talking about the Ozarks? What I mean, what are we talking about here? What what, what what's Eltham? <laughs> I'm, I'm from Sydney, so I don't know. Um, Eltham, if you're from Sydney, it'd be kind of like you know uh, Cherry Brook or Epping or even Dural a bit, like that kind of outer reaches, bushy, big blocks. Uh, my mum still lives there. She's on a, a one-acre block on, in an old mud brick house. It's very earthy and it's, mud brick. It's famous for mud brick houses. The area is really? famous for them. Yeah, so but that's sort of a bit out there. Like uh, yeah, like yeah. I, I don't know anyone owns a mud brick house. I mean, yeah. except up in Byron Bay, where they actually think it's cool to build them. But well, they they're very popular in Eltham. Well, they were particularly you know in the sixties and seventies, and our house I think was made in the the fifties, but. Um, yeah, it's it's there's a lot of clay in the area, so it was a good way to to make it mud brick and peas. Eh? Oh, are we talking about are we talking about uh, working class family or? Uh, it, it, yeah, it's strangely, my yeah, I would say very very strong working class spine, but there's a great kind of dichotomy in my life to use the word again. It's it's uh, and I find it resonates from my childhood and, and lots of things is that. Different worlds meet. So my father was an advertising executive, um, and his father was uh, a brilliant illustrator who worked for the magazines and papers and uh, uh, post-war when he wasn't off fighting wars, which he did a couple of times. Um, so th- they were very uh, – and they were private school boys. So my father went to Halebury, and my grandfather went to Xavier. Um, and Hale- I think he went to Halebury and Xavier because I think he was kicked out of one, but he was also to – 
uh, in the Royal Australian Navy as a cadet um, as well. So uh, they were Bryson. They're from Bryson and Melbourne, and uh, they're very much from Bryson. And uh, that oh, was it the, your father as well. My father. My father was yep. yeah, and my and my grandfather. Uh, they came from you know quite an established family in Melbourne and quite a, a well-to-do background. Um, my mother is the daughter of a um, a BHP miner from Broken Hill, part of the union, like strong unionist, really, really salt of the earth, hard, weathered family, like good, solid people. Um, and so, you know, they've quite diametrically opposed in so many ways. That's probably why their marriage didn't work out. They're so different. But they um yeah, so my mum is really, really working class and my, my father was from Brighton. So uh, that's that's mad because uh when you got uh, as you say your father's from Brighton, like like a bit uh tough bit of a tough sort of environment. Yeah, it'd be like uh, in Sydney that would be like you know, maybe like a double bay or something like yeah, that. Yeah, marrying someone out at uh, you know, dare I say Mount Druid or something like that, like areas where I came from. So yeah, but but how do you, how does a kid navigate their way around mum and dad being so different? I mean, what effect does that have on you? Or didn't it or didn't have any effect? Did you give a shit about it? Do you think about it? I didn't really see them. I, I knew that they were very different, but like I didn't really think about it, and it's not like my dad's family were extremely wealthy, not at all, because my grandfather, you know, kind of committed a good portion of his life to, to, to the services, and uh, subsequently, you know, he became an illustrator. Um, but I think when I was – one thing I do, you know, have a, a great awareness of is that when I was a kid, we used to go and visit my mum's relatives in Broken Hill, and these are like, you know, poverty line living standards. You know, they didn't have much money. Um, and some of my mum's aunties had lost uncles and stuff in the war as well. And so there was um, very humble, extremely humble existence. And my grandfather was extremely humble. Like they had, they had no money and they lived in tin houses and <laughs> like literally made out of tin. My grandfather's house was made entirely out of tin. All the walls were made out of tin and very typical um, of a mining family. And I never, ever remember them being – um, unhappy, uncharitable, uncaring or ungiving. They were the most loving people and like so wealthy in spirit. So I never saw them as – I never understood their circumstances financially. I just thought that they just had great houses because they had cockatoos at the back. <laughs> you know, like they had birds and stuff I didn't have. I was like, how good is this? You know, they've got cages with cockatoos. Yeah, funny. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And it was like – it was a very, very humble um, kind of experience and I think that's given me a lot of grounding for life. Isn't it funny how some people make assumptions, and I just did, that um, uh, when you're, when I'm talking to someone and it happens to people, me too, they know I come from Punchbowl or whatever, mm. they automatically make an assumption yet when, when I was a kid I just thought it was normal. Mm. Everything I saw was normal. Yep. Everything I saw, if I go to my Greek side of my family, it was normal. Everyone ate lots of food, drink lots of wine, everyone danced, everybody's happy, having fun, having mean people. Or if I went to my mum's side, the Irish side of the family, uh, it was totally different. They were all musicians and, and, and we lived in a you know, pretty ordinary area. Um, but it was normal. You're telling me that uh, when you went to see your mum's side of the family in Broken Hill, that, albeit you know, on reflection, they lived in pretty poor territory, um, you thought it was cool because they had cockatoos and – so it was unreal. Shit going on. Like uh, it was just an adventure. Yeah, and it was always sunny and it was always hot and you could go for a swim at the local pool. I remember going to the local pool. We had a pool in my house and I 
didn't enjoy swimming that nearly as much as I enjoyed swimming at the local pools in South Broken Hill, which was, you know, like it was just an extraordinary experience because it was just, and it was like five cents at the turnstile to go through. But, and it was outdoors and it was like, for me, that was like Disneyland. I thought it was incredible. To me, you seem like a really adventurous guy. Like that's, I mean, you like, you have a sense of adventure. You, will ta- you just took on something that was pretty tough adventure and we'll talk about it a bit later. But, um, and to be a comedian, <laughs> You got to be adventurous because you can get you can get a slap pretty easy as a as, <laughs> yeah. as, as a comic like you know like it's not a it's not an easy thing to do. Where does your sense of adventure come from to go down that track to to pursue comedy in whatever form? I look, there's I really don't know necessarily where it comes from. My grandfather fought in a couple of wars. Both world wars and all three services. It's not that fucking funny, though. I know, but yeah, exactly. But you know, he, he couldn't do stand up. I yeah. mean, whatever. Um, you know, you go and beat the Nazis, but you you can't um, get up on stage. But I, look, honestly, I don't really know where it comes from. I don't see like you know historically any kind of braveness. But I am very brave. Like I don't, I'm not cavalier about risk. I see risk for what it is. But I kind of compute it quickly and I'm, I'm attracted to risk. I like danger. I like doing things that is risky. I've, as a child, um, I would climb things, jump off things, you know, do things that were absolutely hazardous. And that resulted in, you know, lots of hospital visits and broken arms and all sorts of things. I just had no fear. And it's not, I'm not even, I would have fear, but I'm, and I still do. I, I can be absolutely terrified the way anybody else would be. But I have an ability to just push through it very quickly. So, because I, I want to talk about that, um, and I'm glad you said fear and risk. Um, do you mathematically consider risk? I mean, do you do you sort of you know like weigh it all up, or do you just acknowledge that there's a risk and that there's a consequence of the risk, and then just say fuck it, I'm going for it anyway? I mean, what's your deal? Yeah, I, I weigh up um, with risk in a business sense. And in uh, you know commercial sense or in uh, in my career, I weigh things up. I take my time. I think them through, and I, I give it a lot of consolidated thought before I make a decision. And it will it'll often be brave, um, or it will be, uh, but it'll never cavalier. Um, cavalier meaning, yeah, you know, just reckless. Like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Fast decisions are good decisions, but in, it, you've got to make that decision accurately, fast, but with accuracy. Um, otherwise you just, you'll make mistakes and, and you'll endanger yourself or endanger other people, um, whether that's business or, or otherwise. But, um, when it comes to physical risk, I am an absolute dickhead. Like I still am. I'm four, almost 48 years of age. Um, and I, I still love risk. I love danger, personal injury. Danger does not, f- like I'm aware of it. And like I said, I'm fearful of it. Yeah, absolutely. But I can just push through it very quickly. We were a daredevil at school. Oh, bananas. Hey, Mary, let's climb bananas. that fucking roof up there and see what we can see. First one there. First one there. All I ever needed was somebody to tell me I couldn't or shouldn't and I would do it. That was it. And, and did that ever get in the shit? Did you ever get in trouble? Heaps. Yeah, Heaps but- of trouble. Yeah. Trouble, uh, trouble at school. Lots of trouble at school. I had to repeat year 11 at a school where my mother was an educator. That's embarrassing. Um, for her. Yeah, exactly. For me too, it was humiliating, but I repeated year 11, then went on to another school after being expelled um, for being an idiot. Um, I just loved, I loved entertaining people, particularly, you know, 
with stupid acts, whether they be funny or dangerous. So daredevil, danger. I love it. Is that part of the performance, sir? Part of it, I, I think the I think I like the fact that the performance is a part of it. When they they combined, it's great. That's you know that's why I, I love stand up. I love performing because there is always that element of danger, and the more live it is, the better. But um, but also too, I, I like I like risk. I like fear and pushing through it. What does like, it do for you? Like, uh- oh, it's um, there's probably like on a personal level, I really really like the kind of visceral feeling of um, overcoming a fear. You know, um, jumping from a great height is a good example of that. I don't like it. I don't want to go in a plane right now and jump out of it with a parachute because it terrifies me. But, Mark, if you said we go parachuting right now, I'd go, all right, well, I'm not going to look like an idiot. Of course, we're going to go parachuting. Um, So there's part of that like that. But also, too, I love love doing things that people think I can't do. Love it. Proving people wrong or is it the adrenaline rush or Both. both? Yeah. Both. If they're combined, I love it. Yeah, it's it's um it's funny we should talk about performance risk. Um, you said the word bravery, um, and uh, uh, like being a bit of a daredevil. They all seem to go to me if I think of a person who's a stand-up comedian, for example. Um, that that's there. The, I would say they're the traits you need to have. Yep. Can I ask? Because I, I was a bit of a daredevil when I was younger. I can you imagine. Know, I'm a lot older now, but when I, I was, it's a bit of a problem for me. But where I was worst. Is when I was drinking. <laughs> so uh, one one of my sons, when it was his uh, christening or something like that, anyway, invited all the family. This all everybody. My wife's side at the time, I was married, you know, and I bring my, my ex wife. She came, and my son from that marriage came. Well, that's and, dangerous enough. I mean, yeah, you just said that. I, I like, didn't give that, it. To me, that's a fearful situation. Well, that was for me. I didn't get fear because I didn't give a shit about it. <laughs> get on, get on. If you don't get on, all go home. But <laughs> but my brother arrived at six in the morning. And we decided to put a lamb on the spit. And, of course, we put a lamb on the spit, but we're drinking red wine. And by the time everyone arrived, a mate of mine was coming down from Queensland. Um, he couldn't get there to two o'clock. By the time everyone arrived, we were fucking sloshed, right? And um, my house was like sort of unusual. It was very high up and there was – I was going to put another level on the building. And uh, so I said to my brother, come on, I'll show you the view from the other level. So we climbed a piss and we climbed up on the roof. Everyone was there, like, and my wife's family really straight-laced – People, you know, like and they never liked me and uh, <laughs> really straight laced and she's freaking out that I'm climbing up there and my son's like one or whatever he was, however old he was at the time. I climbed a thing and I fucking fell off the roof and straight through the tiles, through the uh, gyp rock underneath the tiles. Unreal. Me, cut all my leg open, fucking blood everywhere. Yes. And, um, yes. and uh, I passed out because I hit the ground. I went through the uh, ceiling and it hit the ground and, uh, you know, but because I was drunk, like I was drunk because it didn't hurt. Anyway, my mate was coming down to, down to the thing. He didn't get to see me because I, I just went and laid in bed and passed out. I was gone. I was fucked and uh, slept it off. Yeah, but they probably should have gone to get medical attention. I probably should have. But the but thing is I probably wouldn't have done that if I was sober. Yeah. So what about um, – and I'm not saying I become brave because I'm drunk. Mm. I've just become a little bit reckless. Yeah, um, but that's, that's what they call Dutch carriage. You yeah, know? yeah. That's not, not you. Me. No. No. I'm, I'm more likely – to do something, I'll, I'll do something stupid when I'm drunk, but I'm like never like something like drink driving. Never, get, it would never occur to me to do that. I understand that sort of stuff. I'm just not interested in it. Um, uh, and I, I don't, I don't want to go and I'll, I'll do things. I'll put myself at risk, like go and climb a ladder, 
to get on the roof to get a football or something like that. Yeah. That's the sort of stupid things I do. But it's not brave. It's just stupid. Yeah, totally. But, no, I don't need booze for, for – for courage or for bravery. Because there's no interaction. So that's what I'm trying to get to. I mean, is there any interaction with you and, and booze when it comes to doing crazy shit? No, no, not really. No, I, I love I love drinking um, I, and, I, you know, I'm a drinker. Um, I'm, what does that mean? Oh, I'm a massive drinker. I love it. But I'm a very disciplined drinker. I don't drink anymore because I, I tell you, to be honest with you, I don't drink anymore. I like drinking, but I don't drink anymore because I don't like myself when I drink. Okay, I get, I get into fights and get into all sorts of weird shit. Then you got a bad relationship with alcohol. Yeah, and it took me a long time to work that out. Yeah, and uh, like best part of twenty, thirty years to work it out. Once I started drinking, like in eighty, ninety, so so I don't drink much anymore. Mm. Um, because I can be really happy. I, I can turn really fast. Yeah, and 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 it doesn't take much these days, especially if people know you because you know smart asses and stuff. Yep. So so I don't drink anymore. Um, your relationship with alcohol is. You you still drink? Oh yeah, absolutely. I love it. I love drinking, but I'm very. What does that mean? I I really enjoy. I don't. It's not about getting drunk for me. It's about it's about enjoyment of wine. Like I really really love wine. I've I've got. Um, so you're not a hard drinker. Oh uh, no, nah, I wouldn't say no. I I wouldn't say I am. And like, um, I'm very disciplined around it around wine. I've got wine qualifications. I'm, yeah. I'm uh, you know, certified to a level three for Wesset. Which what does that mean? Basically like a sommelier standard right, of, okay, of, cool. of wine appreciation. I can judge wine and I can appreciate it and write about it and stuff like that. I've got a pretty a pretty reasonable level of qualifications. So you're a, you're a drinker, what you mean by you're a, you're a pr- person who appreciates wine. Wine. And yeah. you drink it because you love it. But I like all of it, Mark. I like all of it. I like whiskey. I like beer. I like all of it. There's, there's really not a lot of drinks I don't actually like. I don't drink them all, and I have. And but from a taste point of view, is that what you mean? I or love what? it. Yeah, the taste. Yeah, it's not because you like all the social interaction or like whatever. all of it. It's all the whole package is great. Yeah, to me. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I don't, I don't like, uh, <laughs> I don't like waking up from from it if I've had too much. But um, otherwise, no, I like it. Thank God you wake up. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. But I, it's, it's. It's something that I'm very aware of. My father was a, a profound alcoholic, and so was my uncle, and so was my grandfather, and so was my grandmother. All on my father's side. My mother's side, again, you know, dichotomy. My father's and uh, my mother's side were teetotalers, completely without without booze at all. My grandfather never drank. Um, so you know, you got my proper alcoholics on one side, and very kind of social and convivial alcoholics, not rage alcoholics, and teetotalers on the other side. But having an alcoholic father who eventually died of liver cancer, I'm very acutely aware of where my relationship with alcohol needs to be. So I, I enforce quite strong disciplines around it. From so a health point of view? From a health point of view, from a control point of view, from a professional point of view, um, it's, it's very, very powerful to love alcohol, love wine, work in and around it, and then not be um, – submitting to it, not allowing it to have mastery over you. That's very interesting. Because once the, once booze controls you, you're, you've lost control of yourself and I won't allow that to happen. So, for example, like I, I, I drank a bottle of wine with my wife uh, last night, which was a Wednesday. I drink every Wednesday. We usually have a bottle of wine. We share a bottle of wine. Um, and I drink Fridays and Saturdays. That's it. But I don't drink Sundays. I don't drink Mondays and Tuesdays. I very rarely will drink on a Thursday, but I might. But um, I said to people, I don't, I don't drink in moderation as much as I drink in consideration. So 
I drink in consideration of what I've got the next day, what I've done the day before, who's around me, what's on, what's at stake in my life. Can I just make an observation of you? I've never met you, never met you before. I mean, I've listened to you, but I've never there met you. There we go. Before. But can I make an observation? Do you mind? <laughs> Please. Some observations. I'm nervous about it, but sure. Okay. You're not what I expected for a start. That's common. Not what I expected. You, you're very purposeful overall. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah. There's not much recklessness in there, although there is in there, but you control it. Controlled. Control chaos is the best chaos. Hmm. So you you have you control your recklessness. 100%. But you actually control it. What I mean by that is like I can be reckless. The way I control it is I just don't drink, okay? <laughs> okay? But you, you control your recklessness, mm. but you still manage to do what you want to do. You control every part of it. Mm. So you're well-disciplined. Mm. So Very. that show you on recently, the SAS show. SAS Australia. Perfect yep. for someone like you. And you're fucking built for it. Uh, did they know that when they recruited you? No, I don't think so. I think like a lot of things. They thought you were a comedian. Let's get this comedian on there. I think a lot Let's of people. Let's pull his pants down. Yeah. I think a lot of people thought that I was going to go on there and just tell jokes the whole time and then I'd burn out but after three But you already days. fucking knew, didn't you? I knew, I knew the moment I stepped into the into the environment that I would be there at the end of it. You probably knew before. I knew you? before it. Yeah. I'd already visualised exactly how that moment would look before I got there. And that's a scary fucking person. Um, so. You you'd already done your fucking homework. You already done your homework on these on the, on what's going mm. on, and uh, they expected oh, we got a we got Merrick here's Merrick Watts who's you know a comedian and a radio guy. Mm. Let's let's pull his pants down. We'll fucking smack him around the mm. joint, and he'll go to water. Yeah, because I think what what people don't necessarily know about me publicly, and it's fine, is that is that there is there's very different sides to me, and I'm very comfortable with it. And it's taken me a long time to get comfortable with it, but I'm neither one thing nor the other. So for a lot of people, I'm actually, I'm a very disciplined clusterfuck. Like, you know, I can go off and be as ludicrous as anybody else. I can go and do stand-up comedy, whatever I want to do, and I can give all of that my all. But when it becomes serious, I can just flick it. I've, one thing I know about myself is I've got very good mental dexterity and I can switch between those minds very, very efficiently and very controlled. That was a word I was thinking about trying to think of before, but I didn't get it. Thanks very much for giving me the word. As I said, your language is very purposeful. Another description I would like to use for you is a shapeshifter. So, yes. Um, shapeshifters are scary people, um, you know, and you shift and you can change your shape quickly. Yep. Um, and you know exactly the shape to change into based on the audience or what your audience is. I mean, yep. It could be a community yep. audience. It could be a television audience. It could be your family. It could be just yourself. Yep. Looking at yourself. Yep. Um, and uh, that, that's sort of quite amazing. I, I, I very rarely meet people like that. Um, and I, I find them really interesting individuals um, to, to the extent that I wonder whether they are totally conscious of what they are. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like you're confirming that to me that mm -hmm. you are. Would you say that yeah, you're a shapeshifter? Uh, 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 yeah, or a chameleon. Right, is the ability to change form and to suit the environment. Yeah. So a chameleon will do that. It changes its form to suit the environment. And that's what I do. So, you know, like if we're having a conversation um, about wine, I'll talk about wine and I'll go really, really deep on it. You know, I really love it. I love talking about that. But I also really like talking about motorbikes. I also really, really like talking about footy. I really like lots of different things. And that's the, you know, that's the thing about me is that, and I used to find it difficult until probably a year or so ago, just before I went, um, to go and do SAS Australia. And then I, through meditation practice and mindfulness, I've really kind of discovered a lot about myself. 
and became very comfortable and accepting of the fact that I'm not one thing. I am a lot of different things. And, and I think the reason why you've recognized Mark is because chameleons or shapeshifters worry people because they go, well, where's the real person? Yeah, 100%. Where's that real well, you are all of them. But that is me. You are all of them. That's what I've discovered. It's okay yeah. for me to, to have all these different and very diverse interests. And my friendship groups are really, really diverse. The people I like are really, really diverse. The things that I enjoy in life are constantly in contrast. So, you know, like it, I, can, I can literally be very, very comfortable um, in the company of working class people in a, in a pit mine anywhere in this country. And I'll in Broken Hill? Blend in. I'll and blend then be in. with um, the Brighton people. What caused you to become comfortable with it? So before... Um There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Before I went on SAS Australia, I, I went to work physically to prepare myself. I, went, I looked at everything that I would need to do, and it wasn't going to the gym. It was doing really hard, painful um, physical um, immersion, you know, stuff that maybe other people didn't prepare for, um, but very based in the military style of training, not in, um, uh, you know, uh, a, an aesthetic purpose. Not gym stuff. No. no. I went to the gym three times in six months. I did all the training on my own at home with no coach. I did it all on my own. So I prepared myself physically, and I also did stuff like, you know, um, pain immersion, cold water immersion, freezing cold uh, um, ice bath immersion. I tried to think of all the things that they could do to me and put myself through that first. So when it, that challenge came to me, I'd go, well, I'm familiar with this now. I'm familiar with this discomfort and this pain. And I thought, well, I've got to do the same thing with my mind. I've got to prepare my mind. So I went to work on, on doing that. And um, in that kind of uh, process of preparing my mind, um, I became quite aware of that, the, the chameleon state. And what it represented to me was not so much about not having a true form. What it was is I was worried about being a jack of all trades, master of none. Why can't I simply just, and this is the thing that I've wrestled with for so much of my professional life is, why can't I just focus on one thing and just be the best at that in the world? And then it kind of, you know, through mindfulness, I went, well, why can't I just be the best at being that chameleon. Why can't I just, that can be my thing. That's my mastery there is being able to walk into any environment at any stage in any company and feel entirely comfortable. What do you mean by mindfulness? I mean, like it means lots of different things, but like. I've, I've literally, you know, um, 
not I wouldn't call it psychotherapy, although I've you know I've had certainly I've spoken to psychologists before. I've had lots. I've had heaps of psych evals, heaps for um, SAS Australia. I had like four, um, but uh, I took the time to really on paper break down my personality, break down my strengths, break down my weaknesses, um, come up with uh, an under- a better understanding of myself. Because going on SAS Australia, I knew that they were going to try to crack my head open. I thought that's that's how they get people. They get they break you down physically to then break you down mentally. That's the process. It's not a secret. So I thought, well, I've got to um, make sure that I'm mentally fit. So I went through the process, and a huge part of that was meditation, mindfulness, disciplines, and um, you know, a disciplined approach to the physical uh, element and a, a disciplined approach to the mental element. And I still live by that now every day. When you say they're going to try and break you down. Mm. Were you looking at this as a, a bit of a challenge, like an adventure, like totally? Fuck you, you're not going to do it, or totally. or I'm going to push on you, or I'm just going to take, I'm going to go with your strength. Which one do you use? Oh, that's a good question, because it's, it's possibly a little bit of both. The I knew that by going on that show and being in that circumstances and being in that environment, that they would get me to a point where I would reveal myself in the, the truest form to everybody and I was comfortable with that. But most importantly, I'd reveal myself to myself and I knew that they would get me in a position where I would see myself differently for the rest of my life and I was prepared to do that because I was uncomfortable with how I was before that. I went on SAS Australia and I've spoken about it before because I picked up bad habits, sleeping in late, became despondent, I became um, demotivated. Um, you know, I could see all the, the hallmark signs of falling into a depressive state. I wouldn't say I had depression, but I certainly had a, a depressed state at times and it was largely habitual. Um, and I just needed a, a confidence boost. I just needed to get back fit physically and mentally and kind of break out of a malaise. So, um, and I knew that SAS Australia would do that for me. So that's why I, I petitioned to go on the show. I wasn't asked as much as I asked first. I went straight out and said, I would like to do that show. And as soon as I did, I just went straight into training mode and that was it. So what was the, but what was the part that got you out of your malaise? Was it the preparation to go on the show or was it going on the show? Because, you know, like- The prep. The prep, yeah. Yeah. So, so you probably found out who you are in the prep period. Did, yeah. And then there was nothing to tell anyone because, well, for you to find out in the show because you already fucking knew. Yeah, that's right. So there was not going to be a big shock. And because when I look at Sam and all those, I mean, I think- there was a bit of discovery for those guys, yep. you know, like uh, Johnny Steph, like a uh, great athlete as he is. I mean, like there yep. would have been a bit of discovery going on there. Totally. You, you, you've, you've sort of backdoored him. I just prepared myself because I wanted it so badly, Mark. Yeah. Like I really wanted it. needed it. it. Oh, yeah, 100%. I needed it. I needed to get that confidence feeling back because I'm a confidence player. When I'm confident, I'm very difficult, very difficult to beat. If I'm not confident, like anyone, I'm susceptible. The best sports people are the confident ones. Yeah, totally. They do their best um, in, a, in a confident state. Um, so I needed my confidence. So, yeah, you're right. I needed it. Do you do it I on your own it. or your family? I mean, what happens? Like wife, kids, you, you married kids? Yeah, yeah so, we've got two kids. Yeah, so where, when you're on this prep journey, <laughs> what goes on there? Like, Oh, my wife just uh, – she just – she's very, very um, – patient and she just goes oh this is just the way he is yeah. this is he and just do it my wife had 
no doubt at any stage ever that I would do anything but come home um, completing that course to the nth degree. She knew it. It was her understanding of me is amazing. She just said, I knew there was never a doubt in my mind that you wouldn't complete that. Um, And she saw the preparation that I was prepared to go to and, and the sacrifices, the personal sacrifices that I was prepared to make. I'm intrigued. Give me an example. Well, they try to break your mind when they're broken your body. Yep. So they, they wear you down through, you know, making you tired, making you cold, make you hungry. You know, you've lost an enormous amount of weight and you just want everything to stop. On the course, I lost, I went in around about 84 kilos and I reckon I came back about 77, which is the lightest I've been since I was a teenager. I was dilapidated. We all lost probably equal weight. Um, you burn it. By that stage, after two weeks on that course, you're not burning fat. There is no fat. It's not, you're burning muscle. Mm. And everything starts to change. Your you, you metabolism changes. Your um, physical and chemical composition has shifted. You're using hormones that you wouldn't normally use. Your adrenaline gland is like just pumping. Uh, endorphins, everything's going. Um, you know, your uh, cortisol levels through the roof. Um, so, you've, yeah, you've got to be prepared for that discomfort. So, in preparation, I, one of the things I did – and this, I've told people this before and they just go, you are not right in the head. Um, because I did it voluntarily. I looked at what would be the worst thing and the thing that would hurt or, or worry me the most, my greatest fear. My greatest fear is not jumping out of a helicopter. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll do that. That's the sort of thing I would do. Um, and anybody who knows me goes, yeah, that's not going to be a problem. But the kookiest thing that <laughs> I did, I woke up at about uh, 11 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night or something like that. In the middle of the night, I got up and uh, left my wife in bed and uh, the kids were obviously asleep. And I, in my underpants, I went into a storage cupboard in our home uh, that was freezing cold. It was really cold, had a, a concrete floor. And I had tracked down um, a soundtrack that I knew that they used for interrogation, the exact soundtrack that they used for Is interrogation. That music? like it? Yeah, it's it's a f- really horrific soundscape. I I just it's so discombobulating. It's it's designed to really upset you, you know, neurally. It just it's an overload. Um and that's what they do. That when they interrogate you, I, that, that was the thing I was most worried about was the interrogation. If I got to the end of the course, the interrogations where they snap people. And I was like, well, I've got to prepare for that. So I, I went into the storage cupboard uh in my underpants in the middle of winter. I put on a um uh, an altitude mask to restrict my breathing, so I'd have to have controlled breath. I um, it was pitch black, and I put on um, noise cancelling headphones with this horrific soundtrack, like you know, babies crying, dogs barking, chainsaws, people screaming, really <laughs> awful. And I put that. I created a loop of it, and then I went into the uh, into the storage cupboard, and um, I put myself in stress positions. So every 30 minutes I would rotate or 45 minutes I'd put myself into a stress position. So I'd be hands against the wall or knees wrapped under on the, on a, on the cold floor um, and basically just put myself through agonizing pain and then mental um, uh, discombobulation to see how it would affect me. And so anyway, I did this for, oh, I don't know, two or three hours or something. And my wife woke up and she had, she woke up and went, where's Mez? So she's gone looking for me around the house and she can't find me. She's gone, where is he? So she goes to the garage to see whether or not my training pack, which I like a, a weighted 
carry pack was there. She saw that it was there and she goes, well, he's not out on a run. He's not training at night, which I would sometimes do. She goes, where is And she became quite worried. She couldn't, she couldn't figure out where it was. And eventually, for whatever reason, she came over and she opened up the door at about like one o'clock or two o'clock in the morning, something like that, opened up the door and she sees her husband on his knees with his hands <laughs> against the wall with a, a, like, you know, a mask over his face, like a, some sort of cretinous, you know, cretinous heathen. It was really weird. And then uh, these headphones on. And she said, what are you doing? And I said, go away, I'm training. And she just went, all right, and just shut the door and went back to bed. And uh, so, what do you think that torture – that formal torture um, did for you. Like, how, how did it prepare you for what they were going to put you through in the SAS, particularly during the, uh, the interrogation? I mean, did you, when the interrogation part comes up, did you, were you able to lean on that? A hundred percent. I was still worried about what it would be like, but it's, um, it's immersion. It, it, I was prepared earlier to submit myself to something that would be worse than what I thought that they would give to me. So that's why I did it for hours. And it wasn't, it was really hard, particularly the, when I did it at home, the first um, probably 30 minutes were excruciating. I found it unbelievably um, difficult um, because you can't breathe properly. It's, it's all of, all your senses are shut down and it's just that noise. Um, and you're in physical pain. Um, but I'd done it and I thought, well, if it does happen to me on the course, I'll be familiar with it. So when it did happen um, and it was like literally it was pretty much exactly what I trained for, I was familiar. And once I became familiar, I had no fear. And once I had no fear, there was nothing that they could do. It's very interesting you should say about familiarity and fear. So a lot of us fear the unknown. Yep. What we have never experienced, we fear. So is that a uh, determined, purposeful process that you undertake to at least not maybe not eliminate fear, but deal with fear, manage fear, but by saying, okay, well, I'll just I'll I'll create a known. Yep. I'll, I'll, yes. I'll, I'll create the known. Wow, you've you've hit you've hit something, Mark, which is very. I've had uh, one other person who kind of did like a psych evaluation almost on me, and he pointed out he said one of your great motivators, he said that you probably never been a parent of, is that you love uh, taking the unknown and creating a known. To take something that is risky, that is dangerous, that other people will shy from, that you are fearful of, taking it and turning that unknown into a known quantity. And it's very powerful. It's inc- it's incredibly powerful. It's very powerful. It feels great. It does feel great. It it's is, control. It is empowering to you. Yeah. But relative to other people when they see it, you become seen as powerful relative to them. And the known bit um, is quite incredible. Uh, it, I mean, it, like I do some weird shit still. Um, so when I <laughs> so when I get stressed out, um, I used to live in Macquarie Street in Sydney um, across the road from the uh, um, Botanical Gardens. And when I used to get stressed out for work, um, my kids were in the in my apartment, and I should, probably should never have done this because I was a single father, and I had my three younger boys in the in the apartment. I would uh, leave the apartment, which is all secure. Boys would be asleep. They were young, 11, 12, 13, that particular territory. And I used to walk across at midnight, particularly if it was a, a dark, like no moon, into the park, and you have to break into the park. 
sorry, whoever's listening, um, I found a spot where I could get under the steel uh, yep. palisade fence. Yep. And I used to walk through the botanical gardens. It's like a forest. And uh, to to just to challenge myself in the dark with nature um, and mm. just to – I wasn't doing any competition. It was just it was just a thing I would do maybe once a month, a couple of times a month, and I became very familiar with it. And I I did it because I wanted to know what it felt like to be in an environment where everything was out of control. In other words, pitch black, no security guys, no gardeners, no light, sunlight, gates are closed, who's in there, what's in there, who knows. And I did it because I wanted to know what it was like to go into the unknown. And uh I remember one night when I was at my farm, I took my kids. I, got, I drank, drank a bit at this particular time. It was a few years ago. And it's a bit of a theme here. Yeah, I know. And I, and uh, my two of my boys were over sixteen, so I gave them a few vodkas. And uh, and uh, we went. We have a forest very close, to, which was on my property. And uh, but it's a pretty dark forest. And I went. I took the boys down the forest. I, I was telling them all these creepy stories. First, of all, I showed them Wolf Creek. Oh yeah, I played the, the video. Then I took him down. You know, the, one of them was only twelve. I mean, poor bastard. And I took him down to the forest. Hopefully, you know, there's no department of something or other's going to come. Well, they're in their thirties now. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But I took him down there and uh, I left him there. I ran away. I, I just left him there on their own in the, and to see what would happen. How long? Who would come back? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the Hunger Games, but internally in a family. Who would come back first? Let's go. Who wants to be my favorite son? <laughs> the one who comes back. Uh, I don't know what the fuck I did it for, but uh, well, I do, I do, I do, I do. Imagine what they were thinking. Well, they they remember it. They remember. Of course they, they do. Talk about it all the time. They say how cool it they is. Do. They say they talk about how cool it was. They, they think today, but they were terrified at the time. They're probably sitting in a chair more comfortable than this retelling the story right now. <laughs> but uh, it was again. It was. Uh, I was wanting to find out. My fear was how my boys would respond to what I'd been doing myself for a long time, and and I, my only way I could deal with it is to know. To know how they would respond, and then I could deal with my fear. And uh, so, uh, but you've done it at a, an extreme level, um, a really extreme level. And then what I think is pretty bloody good is that you then took it into a, a show where millions of people would be watching it. Mm. That's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty clever. I, I look well, at those SAS guys and I think it might be stupid. I, I remember watching the very first SAS when Roxy Jasenko was on there and. Uh, Roxy, yeah. the, the two, they had to punch it, fight each other, like yep. with boxing gloves and stuff like that. Candace. Yeah, with Candace. And, uh, and I thought to myself, how fucking stupid that is. Like uh, anything had happened because, you know, I'm, I've been a boxer for a long time and I thought how you just don't do that. Like you would never be allowed to do that in a, in a, in a gym no. ever. No. Um, and and I, I didn't really get the gist of the show, but the gist of the show is about allowing us to watch you uh, challenge all your fears. Yep. And to see whether or not at what point you lose it. Yeah, what's your break point? What's your break point? Mm. And I, I think it's a really clever show. Actually, yeah, it's uh, look, I can't speak highly enough of it as an experience. It's incredible because it's it, you know you're at this kind of, uh it's, uh, it, there's nothing like it. It's so intense and it is so real in fun in, in funny ways. It's actually more real than. People think it is. You know, people go, oh, it's just television and stuff like that. I, I can tell you right now, it is not just like yeah. television. You, you never, there's never, ever, ever a moment in that two-week period where they say, sorry, guys, just going to stop down for a second. Everyone, uh, just go and have some rest whilst we just uh, get the cameras ready. That never happens. You're being punished for the entire time you're there. 
And the the point is to you know to give civilians um, a bit of a, a just a, a peephole into what special forces life is like. You know, and that's what we've got. Like you know, I don't pretend, and I don't think anybody else would uh, that you know we've kind of opened a window and walked into their world. That's not what's happened. What what's happened is that we've been allowed to see. You know, we're peeking through a hole in a curtain and seeing what's on the other side. And when you see it, it is unbelievably brutal, but you can only see it by kind of experiencing that when you, you go, oh, my God, imagine this times 10. It would be it, it, just unbelievable. And that's, you know, that's the kind of experience. That you, you can't pay for that. Like I, I, I know people who would pay for it. And yeah, totally. I would pay for it. Totally. Totally. I've thought about it. I thought of it myself, and I mean, I, I probably would pay for it. Can I, who, out of all the other, not call them competitors, but, you know, your colleagues yeah, at the time, was there anybody you, that you thought to yourself during the show or during the filming of the show, um, wow, that person's, mate, they're, they're going to get there? Yeah. Who, 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 do you mind sharing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Look, to be honest, the, the four of us at the end were the four people that I picked very early. The four people. And th- th- I know that I think. Uh, certainly, with at least one of them, they thought the same thing. It's it's you can just see it in people's eyes. Could you just for those people who haven't, just take us through the names. So uh, Nick the Honey Badger, mm-hmm. um, Cummins, he's great sportsman. Bloke. Yeah, great bloke, um, and a weapon, a real weapon. Um, James Magnuson, swimmer, weapon, absolute weapon. Um, you know, physically really fit, um, and just went about it. Um, and Sabrina Fredericks. So her was Sabrina. Um, when I first saw her, I thought she was a lovely person. I was really kind of drawn to her positivity from day one. I didn't know who she was. I knew she, she was an AFL player and I love AFL. So I was like, okay, that's great. But I could see it in her eyes straight away. As soon as we stepped off, I could see the intent. And I went, she's, she's, here, to, she's here to go. She's not here for any other reason. You're the non-sports person, relatively speaking, in terms of the professional sports. Yep. Do you think the sporting disciplines gave Help them, them. A, an yeah. advantage? Yeah, yeah. And it, it depends. I think that, you know, certainly um, for teamwork, very good. Like very good. It, that's all about team. You know, Badger said something, which is absolutely true, and I quote it, requote it all the time. But, you know, he said, if you, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with a team. And that is the best way to look at that show. If you want to get to the very end, you are going to need every single person beside you. You're not trying to hope. You're not waiting for people to be eliminated. You're not trying to get people out um, unless they're troublemakers. Um, but what you want to do is you want to get a good group of people because you know that you'll need them, you know, because it's it's tough. Are you obsessive? Oh, probably. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm not like that. And I'm not um, – you know, anal or particular about things and I'm not fastidious about stuff at all. But if there's, if there's one thing that I will say about myself is that if I say I'm going to do something, it is going to get done. That's it. Yeah, well, that's, that's a big asset. Let's just change track a little because we haven't got long. I want to talk about wine. Please, I love talking about wine. How does it form part of your life? I mean, but, and what do you do with it? The accreditation, the well, the accreditation is only, exactly, good point. <laughs> this, what is the point? The accreditations that I have um, and the qualifications that I hold in wine um, are respected and valued by me and by other people, but um, they're merely uh, a result of a larger goal. So I have a company um, called Grapes of Mirth, 
which is we do large-scale comedy events in wine regions right around the country. Uh, it was formed by me the year I was leaving radio and it was the impetus for me to cut the cord with radio um, and leave. I saw a, 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 what I thought was an opportunity, and it is, uh, a great opportunity to do something that had not been done, which, of course, you know, appeals to me. Um, uh, and a few people said to me, it can't be done, so that only appealed to me more. Um, and I went away and created, uh, you know, a, a small but a building and emerging festival now. So, you know, we have a company where uh, we take um, like top flight comedians. Um, we also offer music and food and, and wine experiences around wineries and wine regions right around Australia. And it's been running for a few years now. And even with the battles of COVID restrictions over the last two years, we've managed to survive and then thrive, which I know is something that you love, or I call it survival. Um, which is, you know, just just battle it out and don't quit. You're well trained in that. I mean, you're, you're well experienced in that. Um, whereas, I mean, we've had COVID. COVID's fucked everybody in terms yep. of getting together. Dates, where are you at? So Grapes and Mirth is we've got events on sale now and we've got a, a really, really great expansive plan for next year. Um, we'll build the events vertically and horizontally across, um, you know, different regions and also to expand the model. Uh, to be larger and um, I know this is probably you – know, anybody who's tuned in to hear me talk about comedy must be very fucking bored right now. It's a whole day of wine, comedy and people and that's the three pillars for me. It's comedy, wine and people are three things that I absolutely love. So, you know, it's linked – my purpose and my reasoning for doing things is it's all kind of very focused and very um, innate. Well, it is alchemy in some respects because um, if, I, if I get a good feeling from it, you know, you've you've turned my cortisol into, um, yep. uh, you know, dopamine or something. Yeah, <laughs> serotonin. Yeah, yeah, that's alchemy. Yeah, that's uh, taking a bit of lead and turning into gold. Yep. Well, it brings people delight, and that's ultimately, as you know, comedian, that's what you want to do. You want to make people happy. So it's it's great, but it combines, you know, my love. I've always enjoyed wine. I've always liked liked wine, um, and over the years, I've come to appreciate it more and more and more, and I liked it more. And then I went and got qualifications over. Progressively over a few years, uh, uh, continually kind of add more um, capital to my um, knowledge, so that um, I can be seen in the industry as somebody who is genuinely, genuinely invested in the wine industry as well. They know I genuinely care that I can speak from a level of authority and and um, that I'm invested. Well, credentialing. I mean, is that is that a theme in your life? Credentialing yourself. 100%. Like, and, and with everything, I apply myself no matter what it was. So, you know, at the very start of this year, I was going to go and do vintage in a winery. So I went and got a forklift driver's license. I'll, I'll probably, I used it like for one day and I might not never use it again. But the thing was, I had the credentials to use the forklift driver's license. My next thing to do is I'll go and get, um, I'm going to go and get, uh, do a course start of uh, 2022 um, with Australian Institute of um, Company Directors um, to go and get more credentials, to go and, Upskill myself and train myself. So I do that. I try to do that every year. Mary, I got one one last question for you, and I, and uh, I don't want to be. Uh, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, I've, I think we went down a rabbit no, no, hole with some good. of that no, SAS no, shit. Because this, this leads into <laughs> it leads into my question. <laughs> and don't tell me the wrong way. How how much of this credentialing yourself, and then turning it into a business in your case for the for for the grapes of mirth? How much of that is Merrick Watts dealing with his insecurity? If we go back to what you identified very early in the conversation, Mark, there's there's a desire, there's something there. Um, 
that I need to prove. And it, it goes back. I, I like people underestimate me, and I know they underestimate You me. like that. And I love it. I love proving people wrong. I love people seeing the other side of me, seeing that there's more to me. And to that, you know, I add those qualifications and that empowers me as well. So, to, you know, if you look at it psychologically, it's probably, you know, um, a sense of, um, you know, failure from when I was a kid, failing school, not being qualified, you know, the humiliation of repeating year 11. Those things have, you know, they manifest in, in very different ways. So I take everything I do seriously um, and I achieve those things because people think I can't. That's pretty powerful. That's what I like. Merrick Watts, thanks very much for first your honesty, but secondly, for what you've taught us. Which is fuck all. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to another episode of Straight Talk with Mark Boris. Audio and production is by Jessica Smalley. Production assistance, Simon McDermott. This is a Mentored Podcast. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.